This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. themselves. he just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to cell one, and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cell. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We have a very special Stool Pigeon Saturday today at on the Behind Gray Walls podcast, podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name's Anthony, and I'm chatting with Skye. Hello, hello. I am, I'm excited to be here, excited to uh, talk to Sam. Who I, Sam, do you prefer Sam or Samuel? You know, most people work call me Samuel. A lot of guests call me Samuel. I don't mind. Either way is fine. Okay. Well, we're excited to have you, and I think we'll have you on um, quite a bit more this season as well. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, Samuel, for uh, picking up some of the torch. And Sam is going to be picking up a couple episodes this season, so you will hear a lot more of his voice. Welcome, Sam. Can you uh, explain what, what's your position here at the Old Pen? So I'm the technical records specialist. I work with Anthony and Sky in the education department. I do a lot of time looking up inmate files specifically, uh, doing research, presentations, a lot of tours. Um, I'm grateful to be on the season. I think this is going to be a really fun season. It sounds mm-hmm. like there's a lot of good stories planned for this year. Absolutely. Well, what do you have for us today, Sam? So today I'm going to be talking about showdowns in Idaho. I'm, my sources for this was mostly newspaper.com, inmate files at the archive. I used not just the book Hanged, which is a fantastic book, but also a lot of the source materials for that as well, the newspaper articles, which was so generously lent to us by the author of the book. To start out... Charles Ridgely and John Ewing decided that things had gone far enough, and the men could only settle their dispute in one way. On October 16, 1865, in Rocky Bar, Idaho, these men stood off against each other. In a flash, they'd drawn their weapons. A shot rang out. Then, John Ewing fell, a bullet in his stomach. He would live until six that night before succumbing to the wound. Well, John's death would be one of the first resulting from an Idaho gunfight, it would be far from the last. Now, as most of your listeners already know, Idaho was founded as a territory in 1864 and became a state in 1890. The original settlers were mostly miners, cowboys, and mountain men. Idaho, which was one of the last states to join the Union, was truly the Wild West, which meant we had our fair share of gunslingers, and in the area's history, we had hundreds of shootouts, standoffs, and showdowns. The sheer amount of these battles made this a difficult project to dial in. 
To summarize that many fights was a bit of a daunting task. So instead of trying to map out all of the statistics of these violent encounters, I decided to pick just three specific case studies to talk about. One thing that I found most fascinating about the shootouts was many of them would have very similar beginnings. A fight would break out over a property dispute, the affections of a sex worker, or most common, a card game in a saloon. But after the guns had been drawn and the shots fired, the consequences afterwards would vary dramatically. Some of these gunfighters would be sent here to the Idaho State Penitentiary. Others, however, would just get off with a small fine. Some would get off the hook with absolutely no legal repercussions. And a sorry few would meet the ultimate fate of execution. In the time that we have today, I will be unable to give an entire history of Idaho gunfights to our audience, but what I can do is give a few examples of some of our shootouts. For this episode to demonstrate showdowns in Idaho, I'm going to talk about three case studies of gunfights and their consequences, as well as a brief look into the history of gun regulation, gun development, and the medical effects of taking a bullet. I would also like to remind listeners that this is going to have some content that could be considered violent and disturbing. I will try and give warnings before graphic descriptions, but especially for this episode, please be aware this will be viewer discretion advised. I hope your holsters are ready and your guns are loaded. Let's get this showdown started. They always are. Of course. With gun laws. Gun laws. Idaho in the West was a beautiful place full of new opportunities for arriving settlers, but it was also undeniably dangerous. Wild animals, tensions caused from indigenous displacement, and most of all, and most dangerous, other armed frontiersmen caused pioneers to want guns for protections. Well, a gun could provide protection. It, of course, could also be used for crime. Now, gun laws in the Old West is a topic that's not only complicated, but misrepresented by the modern media. Law and order on the Western frontier was often chaotic and disorganized, but it was also far from lawless. Many new territories struggled to establish rules and regulation as quick as the increase of population would demand for. Because of this, many areas in the Old West, including Idaho, did struggle with a lot of crime. Mm -hmm. Many of the early laws were originally established on a local level. As the territory would eventually be transformed into official state, the legislators and government officials would work to try and make those laws more unified throughout the state. Gun laws are a great example of this. Despite what most Western movies depict, gun restrictions in the West were quite common. In fact, in much of the West, gun regulation were much stricter historically than they are now. Often fights in saloons, brothels, and in the streets would become fatal if a knife or gun became involved. Because of this, many sheriffs would establish a checking system for weapons. Matt Hossier from the Smithsonian Magazine explains the process. Carrying any kind of weapon, guns or knives, was not allowed other than outside town borders and inside the home. When visitors left their weapons with a law officer upon entering town, they'd receive a token, like a coat check, which they'd exchange for their guns when leaving town. Many cities of the Old West would provide these checks. Tombstone, Deadwood, and Dodge City, to name just a few. 
Checking systems, however, were implemented by sheriffs and not governors of territories. Idaho was no different. During its early years, the territory did not have any all-encompassing laws for guns and other weapons. That would be left to the discretion of the sheriff. But, despite efforts put forward by the sheriff to protect citizens, gun violence in Idaho, just like much of the Wild West, was quite common. When conflicts began to escalate, men would often reach for the weapon on their hip to settle their dispute. But when two cowboys reached for their guns, whoever is quicker could determine who would live and who would die. And with that, let's get to case study number one. The Bloody Battle in Palace Saloon, 1898. Now, it would all start with a game of cards, but it would end in blood. When the smoke cleared, two men would be dead in what was Mountain Home's first official murder. Mm. Now, this was a complicated event since there were so many involved in the fight and even more witnesses all giving contrary testimony on what happened. So, in order to break this down, we are going to talk about each of the people involved. We do not have a lot of information on these individuals, but much of their backstories still remain a mystery. This is, however, what we do know. First off, we have Joseph Farrell, the gambler. Now, Joseph's family was from Nebraska. Joseph, however, had moved west, where he and his wife and children lived in a homestead in Haley, Idaho. What Joseph was doing in Mountain Home that night is unclear. He entered the bar under the pretext of playing poker, but the town gossip said he had some sort of rivalry with A.J. Bruce. Many would speculate after the violence was over if Joseph had walked into the saloon that night with the intentions of starting a fight. Next, we have Alex J. Bruce, the owner. Alex, more commonly referred to as AJ, was one of the Palace Saloon proprietors, a prominent figure in the Mountain Home community. He'd been a resident in town for 12 years. A businessman who was active in politics, AJ would often travel to Boise as one of the elected delegates of the local Republican Party. Now we have Lark and Sterling Bailu, the brothers. Now, this would not be the first fight the brothers were involved in. Most notably, eight years prior, in a saloon in Oregon, Lark had stabbed Robert Cannon over a dispute over cards. Lark was later tried on assault with the deadly weapon, but was found not guilty because of a legal technicality. The jury found it, quote, not a true bill. Now, I could not find any record of the two brothers had entered Palace Saloon with Joseph or if they were already inside waiting, but they were known as friends and allies to Joseph. Last but not least, we have Perry Walter, the dealer. Now, out of all of the gunslingers involved, perhaps the least is known about Perry. Perry was recently divorced and moved back and forth between Idaho and Montana. Two years after this event, he would be rumored to be having an affair with a married woman, but on that December night, he had simply been dealing the cards. For listeners sensitive to violence, please skip ahead about two minutes. Now at 10.30, Joseph walks into the saloon to the table where a few men were playing cards with AJ and Perry. Joseph sits at the table and throws down a stack of cash and demands to be dealt into the game. Perry gives him a firm and resounding no. 
Joseph draws his six-shooter, but instead of shooting, he beats the weapon down on Perry's head. AJ leaps to his feet to run, but only makes it a few steps. Joseph shoots. Quote, Raised from his seat and turned a few steps from the table when a bullet entered his head just back of his right ear and went crashing through his head, spattering his brains and blood upon the floor. Poor Alex instantly fell and was soon a lifeless man. Now, by this point, Perry had gone to his feet, and he drew his gun. Shot one, hits Joseph in the body. Shot two, hits him in the shoulder. Shot three in the side, and shot four through the wrist. But as the shots ring out, Lark runs up behind Perry and bludgeons him with an iron poker. Now, between the hits, Perry is taken to the head with first the gun, and now the iron poker. He is a mess. But Perry Walter does not back down. Quote, Yet he maintained his good grit and self-possession, and after emptying his gun, cried out for someone to give him more cartridges, but which he failed to receive. Waters did not receive a wound by a pistol shot during the whole battle, but a bullet did cut through his coat and vest on his breast without scratching his flesh. But before any more damage could be done, the witnesses finally intervened. Joseph and AJ were rushed to the doctors. The brothers Lark and Sterling, as well as Perry, are all, of course, escorted to the sheriff's office. Quote, Notwithstanding the saloon was well filled with men, the reports of the bloody work by those present are conflicting and the number of shots fired indefinite. Hence, we shall refrain from comments upon the bloody battle and the supposed cause of the conflict until the affair has been investigated by proper authorities. While the men wait in their jail cell, the coroner in Glens Ferry is sent a telegram. Joseph is taken to Mr. Brady's lodge to recover. The funeral's preparations begin on behalf of A.J. On January 5th, Perry Walter would be found not guilty of murder after the jury determined his actions were in self-defense. The following day, seven days after the shootout, Joseph Farrell would die from the four gunshot wounds he received in the fight. The Bailu brothers would be held in jail on a $3,000 bond for the following 10 months on charges of accessory to murder. But on October 26, both men would be found not guilty. What? Wow. Yeah. It, you know, one of the things that I found the most unique about this case study was for such a massive gunfight that left two men dead, no one would be found guilty or serve any prison time for this event. What a bloody battle. Wow. Oof. Do you think it's... I mean, this is, of course, just speculation, but I wonder if it's because the charge was murder, whereas it doesn't sound like he went in with murderous intent. Now, should they have been found guilty of something like manslaughter or aggravated assault or so? Sure, but I, that's so interesting. And also, I just feel like I just watched... And maybe, maybe it's because Westerns are so part of our cultural lexicon, but I just could completely imagine exactly how this scene went down. It is classic, like, Wild West from the saloon to the card game to the the shootout. Like, that was <laughs> truly what the Wild West feels like it was all about. And, and that's so interesting because maybe it's just because I've been doing this podcast for so long 
Uh, or maybe it's because I, I see Idaho much more as a mining state than I do as, than I see it as like a, an old West state. But that was such an interesting sort of image, I think, to add to my understanding of the state. Well, and a lot of these guys were miners. And so like, I mean, you're absolutely right. But like mining and old West, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, yeah, that's true. I, the the Hollywood doesn't. I think usually you associate that with like cowboys and cattle ranching and yeah. stuff. And so I guess that's that's a tr- that is true and a good point. Well, and it's fascinating the inconsistency of the convictions. That's that's the thing that I find most fascinating. And, and like we already talked about, it probably some of that had to do with the disorganized nature of the territory. And I think if Joseph lived, they probably would have tried him for first degree because at least the speculation around town was that he went in looking to start a fight. Yeah. And and it's hard to know because, you know, the key players in this event died. We don't know what sort of rivalry was going on between the two men, but there was bad blood that finally kind of boiled over. Despite no one actually serving time, that's not to say this event didn't have consequences. After all, two men lost their lives. The Elmore Bolton would describe the great anguish of Joseph's wife and children. Joseph's father and two brothers would travel all the way from Nebraska for the funeral and grieve together as a family. AJ would also have a well-attended funeral with many remembering him with a generous heart. This is what the paper would have to say about his death. A.J. Bruce, the murdered man, had been a resident of Mountain Home for the last 12 years and conducted himself so as to enjoy the friendship of nearly the entire community. He was about 42 years of age, big-hearted and charitable, almost to a fault, and it is generally conceded that he was always foremost in alleviating the distress of others. Whatever the conflict between A.J. and Joseph was... It cost them both the ultimate price. Mm. Now, let's talk about guns. The West was an exciting time for gun development. At the end of the Civil War, gun advancement had caused firearms to become more efficient and deadlier than ever. I am not an expert on firearms, but I had Rachel, one of our incredible co-workers from the penitentiary, walk me through a brief history of guns. There were many types of guns in the Old West, but some of the most frequent were revolvers, rifles, and shotguns. Some of our fans will recognize names such as the Lee Model Rifle, Springfield Trapdoor Rifle, and of course the Winchester Rifle. Rifles and shotguns were used in many shootouts, but more common for quick-draw encounters were revolvers, such as the Colt Single Action Army Revolver, the Remington Revolver, and the Colt New Army Special Revolver, all of which are display here at the J.C. Earle exhibit. Rachel found a great advertisement for western weapons she found countless ads in idaho claiming to have the finest and cheapest weapons in the state with of course no listed price but thanks to a sears catalog in 1898 we have a few numbers to work with i found prices for the winchester rifle at only 1094 and the colt single action army sold at 12 dollars so, Anthony and Sky, let's play the price game. <laughs> How much would 1094 and $12 in 1898 come out 
in modern currency. I'm going to guess about $200. Yeah, I would have guessed around there as well, yeah. Close. A, a little bit more, though. Okay. This would have been about 380 and 417 Dang. In- that's, Anthony, I think that's the closest we've ever come in I our guessing. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, yeah, I've never gotten good at this game, <laughs> as I, listeners know. <laughs> I, I thought that was a fair estimate. I, I thought you guys were in the right direction. <laughs> I'm just thinking of how much would I spin on a gun. I oh, don't think fair. I would spin more than 200 <laughs> <laughs> so, well, here's kind of the interesting thing. In in round numbers, the price of guns in 1898 are relatively comparable to modern sales. Mm. However, of course, you do have to remember in mining towns, trade store prices would always be marked up significantly. The prices we're looking at here are probably going to be the lowest estimate that you would pay for a weapon nice. here in Idaho. Now, while many people had guns, not everyone had experience with how to use them. Jeremy Agnew, author of Medicine in the Old West, explains the problem by saying, Not all gunshot wounds, however, were the result of gunfighters shooting each other. Many emigrants in wagon trains accidentally shot themselves or others in the leg or hand by keeping a gun at the ready that they were not experienced enough to handle. More deaths occurred in this manner on the Oregon Trail than those from Indian attacks. Yeah, it's uh, something, once again, going back to those Western movies, it's, it's something you don't think of, but a lot more people died from shooting themselves yeah. than, than indigenous people having conflicts with settlers. Um, I saw that a lot in my research. A lot of people who accidentally shoot yeah. themselves in the leg or hand. I feel like researching for the show constantly seeing like so and so on the farm accidentally shot himself in the foot and it's like oh my gosh that happened all the time (laughs) there's always this idea of like the wild west and so there's this like romanticism of guns and and this idea that it like makes you a real like westerner and a real settler and and people don't take the time to learn how to use them properly um you know prior to things like gun permits and stuff like that and so um you know that's a very important advancement that we've seen is that you have to have a license and you have to know how to use them um but but even then like today we still see that same issue but but um yeah i just wonder how much of that comes from this idea that like having a gun is like what makes you a westerner you know like this very romanticized idea again of of the wild west in that way yeah absolutely sky like having a gun and knowing how to use guns two completely different things and <laughs> well inexperienced gunfighters caused many accidental deaths that was not the only dilemma with weapons in the west due to the cost of bullets you only wanted to fire a sidearm if absolutely necessary so because of this many individuals were terrible shots since they never had the opportunity to practice. It also meant that you could be completely unaware if your gun was having mechanical difficulties until it was too late. I've shot a gun, I think like twice in my life. And you know, modern guns are so different. So do you know in terms of like loading time, how quick are you able to like reload? Like we're not talking revolutionary era where it takes you like two minutes to reload every time you fire a shot. So do we have like, you know, multiple um, cartridges. I don't even know the term. That's so bad. I feel like I should stop before I make an absolute fool of myself. But do you know anything about like firing mechanisms or how many um, bullets these things could shoot? Like, what can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and once again, why I was so grateful for Rachel for doing all of that background work for me. So obviously, like revolutionary times, you had like a rod and you actually had to put the bolt down the shaft with a rod in order to try and get it to fire. And the gunpowder and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, they were that way all the way up almost to the Civil War, right? Like this, it took a long time for guns to develop. Well, and through most of the Civil War, we actually see um, guns with rods in order to fire. Um, the bad thing about rod firing guns is the barrel has to be so big to make an easier jam that you often have very inaccurate shooting. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, during the Civil War, that's when the Winchester rifle would kind of perfect the art of quick loading, loading at the back of the gun instead of the front, um, rapid firing, loading. However, um, the U.S. military never really invested into Western, the Winchester rifles. And so a lot of the Winchester rifles that were used in the Civil War were bought individually by troops as opposed to issued by commanders. And it wasn't really into a lot of the indigenous wars and conflicts did the U.S. military start funding and buying Winchesters and other rapid firing guns. Of course, before we move on to the next case study, if you like the history of guns and want to see some real-life examples of how firearms have evolved over the years, please come check out the J.C. Earle exhibit here at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You'll be able to get to see a fantastic collection of weapons, including a lot of old Western guns, as well as an awesome display about women in the West. Also, I just want to say somewhere in my family, we have what we assume is like an old, it's probably not old revolutionary, but it is, it does seem like one of the ones with the rod. And that thing is so heavy. And that's another thing that we, I think, don't think of is that just how heavy these things had to be to, to fire and, and, uh, to be, like you said, they had the really big barrels. Um, and so I'm sure that's a huge um, advancement to make these guns lighter as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and think about one, how important it would be to how much your weight you're bringing on the organ trail. That's a mm -hmm. huge thing these people are, or these groups of individuals are thinking about. And, and the other thing, if, if you're carrying, whether it's a revolver or a rifle on your back and you just have to haul that all day long, mm -hmm. what that weight would feel like just having that with you constantly because you feel too unprotected to no longer have that on your side. Now, as we were saying, misfires were more than just a delay. It was often deadly. You can be the quickest gun in the West, but if you pull your gun and you're unable to fire, your fast hands won't be worth much. This next case study will prove that point. Showdown near Salmon, 1880. Now, this second story is far less complicated, but no less deadly. Our story really starts out in 1878 at a mine in Moose Creek, Idaho. This is where Timothy O'Connor would meet William Ludman. The two would become fast friends, and before long, William would invite Tim to aid him on his mining claim, convinced that there would be enough gold there for both men to be able to make their fortune. Unfortunately, their mining claim would not pan out. Some pun intended. Exhausted and defeated, the men would abandon their claim and part ways. But Tim would leave feeling cheated. 
leading to a rivalry between the men that would last years and finally end in spent bolts. Now, not a lot is known about either man. By 1880, William was 22 years old, very young and excited to be out west. He was optimistic about his future and striking it big. William was well-liked and had a large community of friends in the area. Whether William was from Germany or the descendant of German immigrants is unclear, but in many of the insults directed at William, Timothy would refer to him as Dutch, a term commonly and quite confusingly used to describe many German immigrants at the time. Timothy, on the other hand, was 37 years old. Originally from Canada, he often went under the alias John McCullough. Traveling frequently, he had the reputation of being foul-mouthed and bad-tempered when intoxicated. Tim did have friends in the community, but was not as popular as William. His harsh language, as well as being viewed as a drifter, caused many locals not to trust him. During the next two years, the bad blood would fester as the men worked at various mines in Lemhi County, Idaho. The conflict would start with insults and increase to threats. Timothy was frequently heard at saloons calling William every slur and curse you could think of. In the fall of 1879, William would challenge Tim to settle things with a fist fight. Tim refused to duke it out, but continued to make threats, being heard by one miner saying that he would kill that damn Dutch son of a bitch. Again, audience members avoiding violent descriptions skip ahead about 60 seconds. The winter on February 3rd, William would walk into the saloon where a very drunk Tim was bad-mouthing him. He'd had enough. William walked over to Tim and said, Damn you, that's enough of this. Dry up or you'll get hurt. Tim responded, You son of a bitch. Are you cocking that at me? Both men pulled their guns and fired. One bullet grazed Tim's side while the other planted into William's thigh. Both men fired again, both hitting each other's non-shooting hands. William raised the gun, but the third shot misfired. His weapon was now useless. He ran towards the door, but he never made it. Tim shot him through his back. William would stagger out of the bar and say, Oh, boys! I'm shot through the bowels. This is what the paper had to say. The affair came about so suddenly that no one could interfere. As soon as possible, Mike Callian started for Salmon City to procure medical assistance for the wounded men. Dr. George A. Kenny started for Leesburg immediately. Ludman's injuries were found to be of a fatal nature, and he expired on Saturday, February 7th, between 11 and 12 o'clock a.m. After William's death... Tim would be held without bail and be tried for murder. On July 21st, Timothy O'Connor would be found guilty on first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Interestingly enough, this execution would not happen here at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Until 1899, counties could perform their own executions. Hanging on the county level, however, did come with some drawbacks. Often crimes, trials, and then the executions would be carried out very quickly, not allowing for much time for appeals or for cases to be brought to the Idaho State Supreme Court. The executions would most likely be performed by the local sheriff, who had 
no official training in executing criminals. Then finally, these events would often be public. Henry McDonald's hanging in Silver City and Kuak Wa Choi's execution in Haley, Idaho would both attract audiences of 300 plus people. I'm often asked why counties could perform their own executions. The biggest contributing factor was the new territories were often disorganized, as we've been talking about, and had very poor lines of communication. The first execution in Idaho took place in 1864, eight years before our official Idaho penitentiary had been established. Even after the penitentiary was fully operational and performing executions, hangings still could take place on the county where the crime had taken place. In addition to the 10 men executed at the Idaho State Penitentiary, there would be a total of 16 other inmates hanged in other areas of the state. In 1899, however, that changed. The legislators passed new laws to try and create a uniformity in how the death penalty was occurring. The penitentiary had established systems in place for execution, at the time being performed by the warden and out of view of the public. In 1901, Edward Rice would be the first executed at the prison due to that new regulation. But for Tim, who had faced the gallows 19 years prior to the law, the court would opt for local execution. Tim might not have been as well-liked as William, but that's not to say there weren't many who were conflicted about the sentencing. 123 signatures were gathered in Lemhi County to try and have his sentence changed to life in prison. But alas, this was not enough to sway the decision. As Tim waited for the approaching date, he would claim innocence, attempt to escape, and finally threaten to get even with everyone involved in the trial, specifically saying he would kill the judge if he was ever given the opportunity. Jeez, we've heard that a few <laughs> times before. Oh, I thought Don't say Vim- that. Vimbusi as soon as I read that. Yeah, oh my gosh. Not the thing you want to say if you're trying to claim innocence. Yeah, yeah don't say that. Just even if you aren't trying to get off, maybe don't say <laughs> that to a judge ever. Yeah. Threats to any sort of authorities uh, never happen yeah, to help your case. Yeah. <laughs> no. So on September 17th, 1880, he walked to the gallows built into the jail yard. With the noose around his neck, he would proclaim, I die innocent of murder. I only defended my own life. Those would be his final words. Wow. After his execution, the sheriff would not deconstruct the gallows, but rather he left it standing to make an impression on the community. Jeez. Yankee Ford Herald, the local newspaper, had this to say about the hanging. Quote, We hope that this will be a warning and example to all would-be murderers. The business of pulling a pistol and brandishing the same under the noise of peaceable citizens upon the slightest provocation is getting too frequent for comfort, and we hope it will meet with a wholesome check. End quote. Medical repercussions. Now, we've talked about some of the effects of a shootout, but let's look specifically at the medical consequences. As we've already seen today, getting shot could be absolutely devastating and often resulted in death. But the death could take up to hours or even months to occur. The threat of execution for murderers might have caused some gunslingers to aim for less vital areas. 
One thing that I found in my research is that a great number of gunfighters would not aim for each other's bodies and heads, but rather aim for their feet or hands. While a bullet to a limb could be less mortal, it was often devastating just the same. Mm -hmm. A bolt would often shatter the bone, resulting in amputation. Losing a limb in the Old West could easily rob you of your livelihood, since so much of the era's work was different forms of hard labor. Or the amputated limb could lead to an infection and then death. One of our inmates, Henry Bob Meeks, discussed on a stool pigeon Saturday from season one is a great example of a bolt to the leg. As you may all remember, Bob, a member of Butch Cassidy's gang, had attempted to escape the penitentiary several times. In his last escape attempt from the penitentiary, he would be shot in the leg, resulting in its amputation. A bolt did not need to be fatal to be life-changing. Jeremy Agnew writes about the bullet trauma in his book. Quote, The impact of soft lead bullets from gunshot wounds, in particular, created tremendous bodily damage, ripping flesh and producing shattered and splintered bones. Doctors would probe the bullet hole to discover the extent of the injuries, as well as to remove embedded fragments of lead bullets and clean out debris carried into the wound. In cases of serious wounds to the torso, very often all the doctors could do was try to stop any major bleeding and prescribe more morphine for pain. And by the way, when they are probing those wounds, it's not in the same way that we do now where things are all sanitized. They, the doctors are simply reaching in with the hands they've got, and hopefully there's nothing gross on those hands. It was not until arguably, like later 1890s early 1900s that they even start to real like germ theory doesn't exist and so they are just reaching in there with their hands i cannot imagine it's the worst thing and yeah the dirty fingernails like everything else <laughs> oh my gosh it's the worst and the lack of like flushing toilets the plumbing you know you're just going no, to an outhouse no, and no you, like uh no i can't <laughs> like well, and, and to add to that, the, the few doctors who were using medical tools to remove bolts weren't cleaning them between patients. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And so uh, ugh, it, would be, it would be pretty gnarly. Medicine has truly come so far in such a short amount of time, and I am so grateful for that. <laughs> Me as well. Me as well. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Now, these bolts were lead, small, and round, causing injuries that looked more like puncture wounds. This is one of the reasons why so many gunslingers could survive gunshots to pretty vital areas of the body. On episode 49, you discussed Fred Seward, who attempted to take his own life but survived the gunshot wound to his head, only to go on to be executed here at the Idaho Penitentiary. Some, like Seward, survived traumatic wounds, but most did not. As those dirty fingernails might be a warning of, the biggest threat from a gunshot trauma was actually infection. For example, gangrene developed in 20% of gunshot wounds. Oof. Do either of you have a guess of what your odds were of surviving a bolt wound of any kind? Uh, I'd say 30%. Yeah, I was going to say 25%. Yeah. 1 to 7, so less. 1% chance of surviving? 1 to 7. Excuse me? 1 to 7% chance. 1 to 7%. Chance. Seven. <laughs> One to seven 
percent. Yeah, I, I can't do that math in my head, but um, that's pretty low. So a hundred people get shot, and possibly seven will survive. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But at the least, like at the least, only one survives. Like that yeah. is wild. Yeah. Wow. Don't get shot in the wild west. Oof. No. So as you were saying, Sky, um, doctors would finally start to reduce the numbers of deaths by infections when pioneers in the field of trauma surgery, such as Dr. George Goodfellow of Tombstone, Arizona, began using carbolic acid to clean his surgical equipment. Turns out some sort of sterilization worked miracles for reducing infections and increasing survival rates. Gunshot wounds were common, dangerous, and often deadly. If you survived, your life would likely be greatly altered based on that one encounter. For this final case study, we are going to look at one final fight. It may have only taken a fraction of a second to pull those guns, but the consequences for both men were permanent. Quick draw at Anchor Bar, 1886. It's January 1886 in Montpelier, Idaho. The Anchor Saloon hosts its normal clientele of miners and cowboys having drinks and playing cards as they try to get out of the chilly night air. At one table sits a group of men playing cards, one of whom is Charles Monsana, who also just happened to be bartending that night. Now, Charles would later be described as a dangerous character, having a bad reputation, but most of all, as violent. The card game, however, would not flow as smoothly as the men wanted it to. Charles kept interrupting it to get up and serve new customers whiskey and gin at the bar. Other men began to try and take Charles' place at the table only to be thrown out of Charles' chair at his return. This would go on for some time. You can only imagine how annoying it would be to have your game interrupted that frequently. By 8 o'clock, the players were getting fed up with Charles, who was becoming more intoxicated and irritable as the night drew on. Finally, Andrew McLevin told the others He had had enough, and he was done playing with Charles. Charles' anger, which had been building all night, finally erupted. He told Andrew, Go on, you son of a bitch, and play your cards. Andrew stood up to face the man. Who are you calling a son of a bitch? You trying to scare somebody? Andrew responded, I'm not trying to scare anybody. With that, Charles grabbed Andrew and began to throw him around. The two men grappled. Andrew pushed Charles back. Charles punched him in the face. Charles threw back his apron to reveal his revolver. If the men froze, it was for but a moment. In a flash of silver, both men drew their guns. A shot rang out. As the smoke cleared, Charles Monsana collapsed to the floor. He'd been shot through the face by Andrew (sighs) McLavin. Wow. Dang. Through the face. That Through the face. Brutal. So, Charles is still alive. Oh, wow. But no. in pretty bad condition. Why? Why would he be in bad condition? <laughs> he is rushed to the doctors, and Andrew is taken to the Bear Lake County Jail, where he will be charged with assault with intent to commit murder. 
Now, the testimonies are very confusing and conflicting, but the one thing that everyone can agree upon is how fast the draw was. Many would describe the glint of light reflected off the gun in the split-second flash as it was unholstered and fired. In February, Andrew would be convicted and sentenced to serve five years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Andrew would arrive at the penitentiary on February 28, 1896. Like all the rest of our gunslingers today, much of Andrew's history remains a mystery, but due to the intake information, we do know that he was born in Ireland in 1866. His mother would pass away when he was only 16, and he would leave his family two years later. Whether this is before or after his immigration to the United States is unclear. He did have religious instruction and attended Sunday school, but was no longer attending church. Andrew had eight years of education. He was a moderate drinker who had never been formally incarcerated. He was five feet, nine inches, weighing 163 pounds, had black hair and brown eyes, and his occupation was firefighter. Oh. I know, don't see too many of those in yeah, the 1890s. an early one. Andrew was only one week into his sentence when he ran into serious trouble. Mm. On March 6th, the Idaho statesman reported that back in Montpelier, Idaho, Charles had finally died from his face wound he received in the shootout against Andrew. After two months of suffering and agony, the fight that started in a saloon would finally end in death. But now that the consequences of the fight had become more severe, Andrew, who'd already been punished for one crime, would face new charges. Mm. On April 13th, Sheriff Davis of Bear Lake County would pick up Andrew and escort him back to East Idaho, where he would be charged with murder. This is what the Idaho statesman had to say. This is the first case of the kind in the history of the state. McIlvain's attorneys will urge that the prisoner's constitutional rights have been invaded, but the state's attorneys are satisfied this will avail the convicts nothing. If McIlvain is convicted of murder and escapes the gallows, his imprisonment under the conviction of assault will end and his term for murder commence. If he is not convicted of murder, he will be returned to the penitentiary to serve out his five-year sentence. Now, as we discussed in the previous case study, the gallows was a legitimate threat to Andrew if he was found guilty again. Later that summer, on August 29th, Andrew would be convicted and found guilty to murder in the second degree. Mm. Judge Stanrod sentenced him to 20 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Andrew would fight for a pardon. He would have a lot of support both from the Montpelier community as well as through the rest of the state. Due to the double sentence, this case drew a lot of attention. Many community members who knew both men involved in the fight felt especially frustrated with the sentencing. By 1898, he was being represented by Thomas L. Glenn, who argued on Andrew's behalf. Thomas would direct his debate against Charles Monsana's character. Citizens of the Montpelier community wrote affidavits about the character of Charles to support this claim. They described him as dangerous and violent. 
Here is an excerpt from Thomas's letter to the pardon board. Quote, Nearly every citizen of this community desires his release, and I believe that he should be set at large. Our people knew the reputation of both the slayer and slain, and as the slain was known to be a man who usually carried a gun, and was in the habit not only of carrying a gun, but of intimidating his fellow men, it was but natural for Micklevain to apprehend danger from him. Hence, when the fatal shot was fired, it was done in apparent, if not absolutely, in self-defense. End quote. Perhaps the most incredible part of this story is the way the community would rally behind Andrew. I did not find anything that indicated that Andrew had special standing or importance in the town, but his neighbors and associates felt like he had been wronged by the court system, and they would not stand by and just let that happen. Letters flooded into the warden and to Governor Studenberg. Hundreds of people would sign a petition on Andrew's behalf. Mm. You know, that's one experience I had at the archives. It was like truly touching to go through and see how many people had signed that petition, how many people were fighting, fighting for Andrew. This legal battle, of course, would continue for years. But finally, on July 27, 1900, Andrew would be given a conditional pardon on the condition that he would not be allowed to drink alcohol, loiter at any saloons, handle any firearms or other deadly weapons, or commit any offense against the law. Andrew would walk out of the penitentiary that day and never return. Through all my research, I found no evidence that Andrew would ever violate his pardon or ever commit another crime. His showdown days we're now behind him. Good for him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, I found it a surprisingly touching story. Yeah. These Wild West stories are so fascinating to me. And these mm-hmm. early Idaho stories are fascinating. And for this to be the first of its kind in its history and somebody in which somebody's original crime results ultimately months later in the death, like, and then to be charged again, like, that judge is probably sweating over these books and over these laws, you know. Yeah, and that's that's <laughs> at the time of, of vigilante justice. That right. if you don't make yeah. the right ruling, <laughs> guess who's uh, who may be up next for uh, the gallows? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Well, and one no, thing I thought a lot about with Andrew, at least, is the term habitual criminal mm-hmm. because. Andrew clearly wasn't. You know, he never had any run-ins with the law before or after. You know, he was—he seemed like a pretty solid member of the community. Uh, he was a firefighter. And Charles Monson, on the other hand, was very, very scary. He mm-hmm. often threatened other people. And, and once again, going back to that whole quick draw, how long you're going to spend thinking about whether or not to draw your gun is going to determine if you live or die. And so whether it's self or defense or not can be argued, but you can definitely understand why he wanted to pull that gun so mm-hmm. fast. Yeah. I'm interested to know uh, how many women were involved in shootouts and what those shootouts look like. I know that we did have, she would have been the second female inmate, and I can't remember why she wasn't, she didn't come, but she was, I think if I remember correctly, she was a... Uh, involved in a number of shootouts and was sort of an outlaw in that way. I'd be so fascinated to know that. So maybe that's something you and I can collaborate on in the future. Um, but this is so interesting. I love, 
I love this podcast and what yeah. we do and what we find out. So fun. So um, interestingly enough, Sky, that was actually my next big project. I, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I would love if you help collaborate on that with me because so many, you know, the stories I didn't include in, in this episode today was the all of the men who got off with fines. There were so many gunfights that ended in fines or no repercussions. And with how female inmates were treated with convictions of violent crimes, it makes me suspect a a female gunslinger would be more likely to get off with a fine or no legal repercussions if she pulled a gun during a, a quick draw. And so I know there's got to be a few Idaho female gunslingers and mm-hmm. that's really where I want to go next with this gunfighting research is, is find out who the females were in these showdowns the women who were showing their grit in these pretty tense moments mm-hmm. totally well maybe we'll give Anthony a half a season off and you and I can do a short little season of of women gunslingers I love oh, that'd be awesome that sounds great that'd be so fun <laughs> I can't wait to hear it yeah <laughs> yeah it'll be a total surprise to you Anthony <laughs> hopefully you like it <laughs> I just am excited to write music for that too <laughs> Ooh, that'd be fun yeah So, of course, Idaho was a land of prosperity and opportunity for many during its territorial days. Um, But as miners, cowboys, and fur traders flocked to the area, conflicts would break out in that growing population. And those conflicts were often settled with the six-shooter on the hip. Today, we've looked at three case studies of shootouts as well as the history of guns. And I hope you're all walking away into the sunset with a better understanding of showdowns that took place here in Idaho. Very good, Sam. Well done, well done. Fantastic. Wow, well, that was great. Thank you so much for doing all this research, putting together three really interesting kind of case studies of early gun battles here in the territory, in the state. I think that's such a great preview as to, uh, you know, when you're going to step in for Anthony uh, later this season. And and I think I'm excited to see what you've got. Well, thank you, Sky. I appreciate that. Yeah, these my two episodes coming up are going to be pretty fun. I'm going to talk about a boxer and a murderer. uh, So everyone stay tuned. I think this is going to be a great season. Not just my stories, but Anthony and Sky have some pretty amazing stuff coming too. Now is that, is the boxer and the murderer, are they the same person or are they two different people? They're two separate people. Um, You know, the boxer I'm excited about, he's, uh, you know, his crime is not that significant. It's kind of his boxing career that makes him a little more interesting of a story to tell the murderer though also one of these old western mining stories is going to be very intense that will also be a very viewer discretion advised episode awesome well i can't wait excellent i can't either sam thank you so much for taking on so much this this year in this position you've been doing a great job if we were to say uh do your own time how would you respond to that Uh, do your own number that's right all right everybody Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll talk to you soon.